One day, Didi was working in the cornfield, raking, when she heard a sound. That afternoon, a fisherman started to pull his net from the river. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, and more. And it's going to be a great hour today. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. You're going to hear stories from Bob Reiser, a story called The Horrible Shoes of Abu Qasem. You're going to hear Perger's Gardens, a, a little tall tale from Paul Strickland that you're really going to enjoy. And in order to introduce us to the first story that you're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Samantha Dane. Samantha, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Great to be here. Are you a horse person? Yes. I was always the little girl who loved horses and always wanted to go horseback riding. <laughs> did did you I mean did you did you get a chance to do that sometime? Um sometimes on the very rare occasion um we would go on like a trail ride with my family and yeah. we'd all get to ride the horses and I loved the horse and I'd talk to it while I was riding. It was the best thing ever. So you not are, a ton, but every now and then. And you are eternal friends with those yeah. with those horses. This this is a horse story that we're going to mm-hmm. listen to now. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, so this story is called Alazao, The Horse That Saved Six Lives, A True Story, Hmm. um, which is fascinating. It is a true story. It's a a true story from the life of our storyteller, whose last name you have to remind me how to pronounce. (laughs) Antonio Rocha, the wonderful storyteller and mime, came from Brazil some three decades ago. Uh, And for a while, we had a really interesting conversation with Antonio Rocha on the show. Um, He was for a while an actor, worked, had this aspiration of being a Broadway actor. And he, he says that that comparing his life as a stage actor to his life as a storyteller, he says that he was more successful as a stage actor as he learned more and more and more to be what was acceptable as a stage actor, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, as he kind of got further and further and further from himself. (laughs) And he says, and he says, as a storyteller, he's more and more successful the more like him he is. He gets to be himself. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, Yeah, it was a a cool conversation that we have. But yes, Antonio Rocha tells this wonderful story. And it's a Brazilian story. It's from his hometown. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's this wonderful, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I mean, they're, they're, the, the story's great. The ending's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> they can hear it and we can talk about it after. That's right. <laughs> Here's Alasal, the horse that saved six lives by Antonio Rocha here on the Appleseed. Alasal. <laughs> <laughs> The Horse That Saved Six Lives, A True Story Wanti Dee was a girl. She lived in a farm surrounded by great towering mountains. There are many wild animals in this farm, such as wolves, armadillos, toucans, parakeets, quachis, monkeys, furry spiders six inches across scorpions, and snakes. 
many, many snakes. There were poisonous snakes too. The most feared snake was one called Jararaca. Can you say that name? Jararaca. This snake was blind and I was ready to strike. There were also many farm animals, such as horses, cows, oxen, chickens, roosters, ducks, and pigs. Didi's favorite animal was Alazon, her father's horse. Alazon was the best horse in the farm. He was big and strong. Whenever Alazon was resting, Didi would go there and pet him, groom his shiny dark fur. Didi also loved to lean against Alazon and feel his breath. His ribs would move up and down. He was very peaceful. She also would feed him sweet corn, apples, carrots. Didi also loved to ride Alazon. Oh, she had a great time. She loved Alazon very much, and Alazon loved her too. Didi was the oldest of Senor Manuel's children, and already a teenager, she had many chores around the farm. She helped her mom with the younger siblings. She worked in the cornfield and also took lunch up the hill to the workers in the coffee field. Senor Manuel, her father, was a tenant farmer, and the coffee field was his most important responsibility. One day, Didi was working in the cornfield, raking, when she heard a sound. Huh, but there are many sounds in the farm, so she really didn't pay much attention to it. So she kept on raking and raking, and the sound got a little louder, and all of a sudden, the rake started to move, and it was moving and moving and moving, and before she could do anything about it, the pain was so strong, the D screamed, but nothing came out. And then she screamed again, and when her father heard it, he came running down from the coffee field into the cornfield, and when he got there, Didi was lying on the ground with her leg shaking up in the air, and right on her foot, holding tight, was a very large jararaca. Senor Manuel took his big knife and killed the snake right there and then. He picked up Didi and walked towards the house. The neighbors came in running. They knew something awful had happened. Didi was placed on her bed. People walked into her room, and they started praying and praying. Now, let me tell you how people used to take care of snake bite victims back in those days. They would pray day in and day out. They would feed fat from a wolf to the victim. They would make potions with kerosene. And then, 
only a few survived to tell the tale. Many, many died. They'd swell up, bleed from their pores, ears, nose, and eyes. And as the people were praying, they heard Alazon. It was Senor Manuel riding on it. And he came close to the house and he yelled to the people, You may take care of my daughter any way you wish, but I'm going to town to get the antidote. And he slapped Alazon, and Alazon took off with a cloud of dust following it. Alazon knew that something was wrong with Didi. You know how animals are. It was one hour horseback to town. <laughs> Senor Manuel rushed into the pharmacy, and there he saw Senor Baltazar, the pharmacist. Senor Baltazar knew that something was awfully wrong, and Senor Manuel said, Senor Baltazar, my daughter Didi has been bitten by a jararaca. She's not doing well at all, as you, as you know. Senor Baltazar grew pale, and he said, Oh, Senor Manuel, I'm so sorry. I don't have a horse today, and I'm the only one that can administer the antidote. Senor Manuel thought for a second or two, That's no problem. I'll stay here in the pharmacy. You take Alazon back to the farm, and please take care of my daughter, please. Senor Batazar wasted no time. He got an alazon. That was the second hour for alazon. Senor Baltazar got off the horse and walked into Didi's room. There she was, feverish. People were praying around her. People were very worried. He opened his case and administered the antidote. He took a look at Didi. She was asleep. He turned to Didi's mom, smiled, and told her that Didi was going to be fine. He got an alazon <laughs> and rode back to town. That was the third hour for the horse. Senor Manuel was there, pacing back and forth. There were people from the town in the pharmacy talking to him because they all knew Senor Manuel really well. Senor Batazar broke through the crowd. How is my daughter? Senor Manuel said. She will be fine. Go back to the farm right now. Go back. <laughs> And when Senor Manuel got back to the farm, Alazon dropped to the ground. There had been four hours of riding back and forth. Remember, this is a true story. People brought a bucket of water for Alazon, and he drank it all. Senor Manuel rushed into the room, and when he got there, people were telling stories. Didi was awake. 
and complaining more from the antidote shot than from the snake bite itself. Oh, it was a joy to watch Didi. She was going to get better. And a few weeks later, she was. And she was back to her own self, playing around the farm, helping her mom with her siblings, helping her father, and of course, visiting with Alazão, the horse that had saved her life. Now, you listeners out there, you must be wondering why I named this story Alazão, the horse that had saved six lives. Well, Didi grew up and had five children. I am the youngest. Antonio Rocha with the story Alasao, the horse that saved six lives. I love that story so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a heart-stopping adventure anyway, mm-hmm. right? But then to learn of the personal connection that Antonio Rocha has with that story, it just kills me. It's great. It's yeah. like, oh, that was his mom. <laughs> this horse saved his life. It makes it so much more real. Yeah. You know, we love to bring Antonio Rocha stories to the radio. Antonio Rocha is a, a, a storyteller and mime, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so much of a live performance from Antonio Rocha is is watching him work, you know. And again, so much translates to the radio, the imagination. I, I, I saw Antonio Rocha perform that story at the National Storytelling Festival. And it was, again, just heart-stopping, the investment of this person whose family story it is in the physical telling of the story and, of course, the verbal telling of the story, too, you know. Love that story. Alasao, the horse that saved six lives by Antonio Rocha here on The Appleseed. There's a lot more coming up. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we listened to a story from the great storyteller and mime Antonio Rocha, a story called Alasao, the horse that saved six lives. You think you're just listening to an adventure tale when you realize you're listening to a tale about Antonio's family. Stories from Bob Reiser and Paul Strickland coming up, but first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people you love, here is a memory of mine. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. When my little brother graduated from high school, he already had a lot of big plans. He's an enterprising guy. Almost immediately, he was working for a big company doing photo and video work all over the world. His social media feeds are always full of these exotic and kind of enigmatic photos. And it's been kind of cool to watch his post-high school life unfold. The seeds of his enterprise go back to when he was a little kid. Maybe it's this way for a lot of kids, but my brother had opportunities, like I did, and maybe you did too, to work for neighbors, mowing lawns, feeding animals. I had a couple of gigs like that when I was young. 
but my brother had one that I especially remember. To be sure, there was nothing unusual about the gig itself. There was a neighbor who was going out of town for a bit and who needed his cat fed. Well, the way I heard the story, the cat was to be fed out in the hay barn. He was a barn cat. And my brother was just supposed to make sure there was a little food and a little water and the dishes set out for the cat every evening. My brother would go over there and then he'd take care of it before dark and then he'd lock up the barn and get home and do homework and have dinner and whatever else. Simple. The guy going out of town gave my brother a little heads up as he went out of town. He told my brother that the cat wouldn't always come out to be fed. The cat had lots of places to hide and was often elsewhere in the barn, napping or mousing or bathing or otherwise hanging out. But he told my brother something else. He told him not to be freaked out if he got to the barn and heard voices inside. He said that he was going to leave a radio on in the barn while he was gone. And he said he thought it would help keep unwanted animals away. And furthermore, he said the cat liked it. So my brother was not to be freaked out if the radio was on when he went to feed the cat. And furthermore, he was not to turn the radio off. Simple enough instructions. So the first day of the cat owner's absence went like clockwork. My brother went over to the house, undid the latch on the barn, filled the food and water dishes. And in the center of the barn, he saw that there was an arrangement of hay bales. They sat in a kind of pyramid in the middle of the barn. And sitting on top of the highest point in that tall pyramid of hay bales, a little radio sat, tuned to a talk radio station, broadcasting news and culture throughout the barn. And what do you know, there was the cat winding its way up and down the pyramid of hay bales, here leaping on top of a bale of hay, there disappearing into the space between hay bales and appearing again. My brother finished his job, closed the barn door, and went home. And this went on for a couple of days without any incident. But a few days into his cat-feeding gig, he had a soccer practice or something followed by some church thing or other and didn't get home until late, way after dark. And by that time, he had forgotten about going over to the barn to take care of the cat. He got ready for bed and was about to turn in when he remembered the cat. So he got out of his PJs and put on some sweats and a pair of sneakers, and he went over to the barn with a flashlight. And even before he unlatched the door, he heard the radio blaring away. Only it wasn't voices, not this late at night. This station, which played talk radio during the day, played jazz after dark. So this jazz was coming out of the barn when my brother flung the door open, and then his heart jumped into his throat. He had expected he might see the cat in the barn. He had prepared himself to see the reflected light of a pair of eyes in there, the eyes of a cat waiting for its food. That wouldn't have surprised him. But the beam of his flashlight had caught the reflected light, not of a single cat, a single pair of cat's eyes, but of the eyes of more than two dozen cats. They lounged all over the hay bale pyramid, all of them with their eyes on him as he trained the flashlight on them. It didn't look like he was bothering them particularly. None of them got up and ran, and of course, they didn't attack him or anything like that. And so my brother 
got a good look at all the neighborhood cats. Every cat that was able to sneak away from its own yard rounded up here in the barn for what my brother figured was a nightly gathering to listen to jazz on that little radio. My brother, these days, again, travels the world taking photos, making videos, but it's a good bet that he never meets cats as cool as the jazz cats in the barn around the corner from home. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories around the kitchen table or the living room. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Massachusetts storyteller Bob Reiser with a story called The Horrible Shoes of Abu Qasem. And you're going to hear a story from Paul Strickland as well called Perjure's Gardens. You're going to love both of those stories. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs, on screen, and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined by Teresa Love in the studio. Teresa, it's great to have you. Oh, so happy to be here. Thanks. Teresa has the enviable job of teaching college students how to tell stories. Is that a moment of silence for that, maybe? <laughs> well, I, I love it. Uh, although I've heard a lot of scout stories yeah. and uh, made me worry about ever sending my son on a scout trip. Isn't that funny? You know, we we have had, and I'll, I'll, we, we should let our listeners know, we've had some, your students into the Appleseed Studio to chat with us and to tell stories. And it's camp story after camp story after camp story after camp story. Yep. It's, that's... I, and I absolutely made my husband go on every camp out that my son went on <laughs> because of those stories. <laughs> well, we have called Teresa Love into the studio to talk with us a little bit about a book that she loves, a book that's important to her. And I'm excited about this. This is, we're, Tell us what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about Make Way for Ducklings. Make Way for Ducklings. Oh my gosh. You know, I discovered this book when I was in elementary school. And then later as an adult, I... Uh, uh, one came, a copy of this book came home as a souvenir of a trip to Boston. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, how fun. <laughs> That's great. Well, tell us about Make Way for Ducklings. Well, I was trying to think about why it was so important to me. Um, my dad was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And the first thing they would do, because we moved frequently, was they would find the church and then they would find the library. Mm. And those were the things that uh, ran true for me in every place we lived. And we lived all over the place. Yeah. I remember going to the library on the Air Force Base in New Hampshire wow. and getting the book Make Way for Ducklings. <laughs> and New Hampshire is not that far from Boston. And we went to Boston um, eventually. The book, the book is iconically... A Boston book, absolutely right. It's if, from the from the policemen to the inhabitants of the city, and of course the ducks. Sure, yeah. And I think you know it's about ducks who um, uh, find a place to lay their eggs and yeah. to raise their children, and they find a park in Boston to do that. And 
<clears throat> you know, I think back now, and I think we moved so often that that was a really familiar scenario yeah. to me, to uh, that the mom and the dad are finding the place where we could be safe and... <laughs> and of course, there are the dangers in the park. Yeah. The kid who rides his bike too fast or um, the crossing the traffic and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But the people who read this book for the first time are people who are going to school for the first time, people who are encountering for the first time kind of what a big world it is outside of their home, you know? Right. And it sure is easy to feel like a duckling, isn't right. it? Right. Oh, you exactly. Know? And, yeah, people make us line up all the time, right? right? And <laughs> that's what those ducks do. Jack, knack, quack, lack, you know, all those <laughs> those funny little names that they yeah. gave the ducks. And the illustrations are... So evocative. Yeah. They're these monochromatic illustrations, Uh right? But they're just gorgeous. They're just so much fun. Yeah. And so you could go back, even though mom or dad couldn't read it to you, you could just sit there and flip the pages and tell the story to yourself. Yeah. Even if you couldn't read, as you say, you you could bring it back into your mouth Uh just by looking at the pictures, just by flipping those beautiful pages. That's right. And those (laughs) ducks end up all being safe. Yeah. Everybody takes care. You know, the traffic gets stopped so that the decks can go across. And um, it's so reassuring that in this, you know, crazy world of all the things that happen to you when you're, you know, four, five, six years old, yeah. that that they're, that people notice you and that they will stop the traffic yeah. for you and that that, that, that can happen. And that the policeman is your friend, yes. that you're not going to be swamped by the boat. That right, you know, right, all these, exactly. All these things that you learned. And what a delight that it, it, it has stayed a favorite for you oh, yes. over many years. For my daughter, for my son, and now yeah. my grandchild. Yeah, boy. You know, I find myself... I, I I found myself looking online, shopping a little bit online for books that were a part of my childhood. Uh-huh. And I, I had to be honest with myself because I think there was a part of me that might have said, well, you know, for my children and grandchildren when they come, I've got to have these books on the shelf. But I, I really sort of had to admit halfway through that process that I was getting them just because I wanted them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> so you can say all you want about Make Way for Ducklings being for your children and grandchildren, but I see the light in your eyes as you talk about this book that's important to you. Right? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I can't can't quit grinning. And Robert McCloskey in general. Yeah. What beautiful books he wrote. Yeah. Well, Make Way for Ducklings, that terrific book by Robert McCloskey. I'm seeing it in my mind's eye now, even as we talk about it. Isn't that the way it is with some of these books? You know, you find uh, 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 they're like we, we, we've said before in conversation with you, Teresa, that these books are in some ways kind of like zip files. You know, you can you can touch one and it unfolds into a memory that's even bigger than the book. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you find yourself in Boston, Boston is littered with people who are following the trail of Robert McCloskey's ducklings, right? That's right. They still hold traffic for ducks. <laughs> That's right. What a pleasure to have Teresa Love here in the studio with us. Teresa, thanks so much for joining us. So happy to be here. Thanks. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne.
Stories come into our lives in so many ways. Great to chat with Teresa Love about a favorite picture book. It's been a favorite of mine, too, for years and years. And, of course, there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Bob Reiser, the Massachusetts storyteller whose family hails from the Middle East. You'll hear a story called The Horrible Shoes of Abu Qasim. It's coming up next. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a great conversation with Teresa Love about a terrific old picture book called Make Way for Ducklings, one to get familiar with for sure. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Paul Strickland in just a little bit. But first, from Bob Reiser, the Massachusetts storyteller whose family hails from the Middle East, here's a story from a collection of tales called An Evening with Grandpa Abe and Uncle Ahmet, Middle Eastern Stories to Mend a Broken World. And in this tale, it's a tale of a very wealthy yet frugal man who won't spend a penny on anything, and as a result looks like the poorest of men. His shoes are especially terrible, but in his quest to be rid of them, the shoes keep reappearing in increasingly surprising and comical ways. Here's the story from Bob Reiser on The Appleseed. The Horrible Shoes of Abu Qasim great city of Baghdad, there was, and there was not, a man called Abu Qasim. He was a miser, a miser of a miser. If Abu Qasim had a penny, he kept a penny. Nobody could get it from him. Not even the poorest, most miserablest beggar. However, if you had a penny, he'd get your penny. Abu Qasim was a genius at getting other people's money. He was a businessman. He was so stingy, he wouldn't even spend a penny on himself. Which is why he looked like a bum, with his torn-up rope and his famous horrible shoes with the patches of the rubber and the leather and the nails sticking out. But today... Abu Qasim was feeling lucky. You see, he had just bought a thousand of the tiniest, delicatest crystal bottles from a poor merchant who had nothing to put in the bottles that was any good. Abu Qasim didn't care about things like that. He filled the beautiful bottles with the cheapest, stinkiest perfume he could find. Now he'd sell them for a fortune, which is why he did something he very rarely did. He decided to take a bath. Now this is not an ordinary bath. This was the public bath in Baghdad, a palace with steam rooms and big warm pools for soaking. At the baths, Abu Qasim took off his tattered clothes, his horrible patched-up shoes with leather and rubber and nails sticking out. He set them under his bench, and he stepped into the warm pool, and he began to soak. He soaked, and he soaked, and he soaked. He was going to soak up enough water to last him for a year. 
He was so busy soaking, he didn't even see the great caddy, the chief magistrate of Baghdad, come in, set his clothes on a bench near Abu Qasim's smelly rags. Well, finally, Abu Qasim was soaked to a prune. He stepped from the bath. He dried himself with a great white fluffy towel and he began to put on his tattered old clothes. Except? Except? His shoes were gone! So he got down on his hands and his knees and he crawled around the floor. But all he found was a pair of the most beautiful, delicate, silver shoes he had ever seen in his life. Uh, where did they come from? Perhaps, perhaps a kind genie had given him these shoes as a reward for being such a good businessman. Yes, that was it, a genie. So, Abu Qasim put on those beautiful shoes. He thanked the genie and Allah, God, and he left the bathhouse. But a story is not over. Abu Qasim hadn't gone far when the great Qadi emerged from the bath. Smiling and drying himself on a great white towel, the chief magistrate reached down for his shoes and... What happened to my shoes? His voice thundered across the bathhouse, shouting and cursing. The caddy crawled around the floor looking for his shoes, but all he found, tucked under the bench, were the ugliest shoes he had ever seen in his life. Monstrous things with patches of rubber and leather and nails sticking out. Only one man in Baghdad wore such horrible shoes. Get me Abu Qasim! So, it was a very surprised Abu Qasim who found himself standing in front of the magistrate, shivering in his new shoes. No shoes, asked the caddy. You like them? <laughs> the caddy turned red, and then purple, and then blue. They are my shoes! And then he held up a pair of horrible shoes with patches of leather and rubber and nails sticking out. These are your shoes. But uh, <laughs> a genie gave me these. A genie? Well, all the people laugh. The police laugh. But the chief magistrate, he does not laugh. For stealing my shoes and then telling such an atrocious lie, I fine you one hundred pieces of gold. Abu Kasim. He took off the silver shoes, and he went limping home in his old torn-up things with the patches of the leather number and nails sticking out. And for the first time in his life, he pinched his foot. Ow!
The next day, Abu Kasim decided to buy a new pair of shoes. After all, soon he would be a very rich man. Down at the market, he bought a pair of leather shoes, hardly used, and he threw his patched-up monstrosities into the river. Goodbye forever! Splash! But our story is not over. That afternoon, a fisherman started to pull his net from the river. Oh, it was very heavy. Oh, he had a good catch! A pickerel, a mackerel at least. Well, he tugged and he tugged and finally he yanked his net from the river. No pickerel, no mackerel. Just a pair of horrible patched up shoes with leather and rubber and nails sticking out. Abu Kasim's horrible shoes, he shouted and then... When he saw how the nails had torn up his beautiful net, he did what any good citizen would do. He sued. The next day, Abu Kasim stood once more in front of the great Kadi of Baghdad. Do you hate this fisherman? asked the Kadi. <laughs> no, Your Honor. <laughs> then why did you destroy his nets? It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the shoes. <laughs> the court began to laugh. I, I, I threw his shoes away. Now everyone laughed, even the Kadi, for Abu Kasim never threw anything away in his entire life. For damaging the nets. And for telling another outrageous story, you will pay the fisherman two hundred pieces of gold. Two hundred? Make it three hundred. So, Abu Kasim gave the fisherman three hundred pieces of gold, enough to buy a whole new boat, and he marched home, carrying his horrible wet shoes. They were so disgusting. He did something else he had never done before in his life. He put them into the hands of a poor blind beggar who sat in front of his house. Here, take them. While Abu Kasim was climbing the stairs to his house, the blind beggar peeked down at the wet, smelly things in his hands. Two... Horrible shoes with leather and rubber and nails sticking out. You think I got no pride? Take your damn shoes. And he threw the shoes as far as he could. As Abu Kasim opened the door to his home, he heard a terrible crash. He ran in and stared. There lay the shattered remains of a thousand delicate crystal bottles. The room stunk of cheap perfume. And lying in the middle of this stinking mess were two 
hideous shoes with patches of leather and rubber and nails sticking out. No! He tore his hair. He beat his head on the ground. He ran to his bed. He pulled up the covers to his chin. He wept my fortune. It's gone, 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 gone. <laughs> and then he stared at those two hideous shoes. You did it. If it is the last thing I do, I will get rid of you. He sat up, a wild gleam in his eyes. Ah, I know what I'll do. I will bury you so deeply that you will never, ever escape. And with a wild laugh, he jumped up and he ran to his garden to bury his horrible shoes. All night he dug. He dug and he dug and he dug until he had a hole deep enough to bury not just the shoes but an entire body. Which unfortunately, was exactly what his neighbor thought when she ran to get the police. And once again, Abu Qasim stood before the great Qadi of Baghdad. What is your excuse now, Mr. Qasim? <laughs> I, I was just... Uh, burying the shoes. <laughs> Nobody laughed. You must think we are idiots! And the Kadi ordered the police to dig up Abu Qasim's garden until they found the dead body. Three days later, Abu Qasim stared at the wretched mess that was once his beautiful garden. Gone was the olive tree, and the lemon tree, and the pear tree, no more fountain, no more lilacs, no more roses, nothing except mounds of dirt and two horrible shoes. He glared at those monstrosities with the patches of rubber and the leather and the nails sticking out. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. He grabbed the shoes as if to strangle them. Ow! He stuck himself on one of the nails sticking out. And with that, he hurled the shoes up over his garden wall with all of his might. Be gone! But a story is not over. There was a thunk and the terrible sound of a woman's cry. Oh! And once again Abu Qasim stood before the great Qadi of Baghdad. A woman with bandages on her head and a babe in her arms sat by the magistrate's side. Abu Qasim, what possessed you to throw these little shoes at this poor woman's head? <laughs> Your Honor, it was an accident. <laughs> Without another word, Abu Qasim was ordered to pay the wounded woman five hundred pieces of gold. And late that night, 
People reported seeing a madman in tattered clothing stumbling along the streets, muttering curses at an ugly pair of shoes. He was heading toward the city gate. And if they had continued watching, which they were afraid to do, they would have seen the wretched figure stop and then slide the shoes under the gate. Good riddance forever. Pui! But our story is still not over. If he had stayed, Abu Qasim would see a mangy dog rouse himself, sniff at his shoes, pick them up, and carry them under a gate back into the city, and then drop them into the nearest sewer. The next day, a terrible stink rose from the sewers. Soon, foul water was rising from the drains, flooding the streets and the houses. We're cursed, howled the people. The police went into the sewers to discover the cause, and they found it. Stuffed into the great pipe that drained water and sewage from the city were... You guessed it, Abu Qasim's horrible shoes. Once again, the miserly merchant stood before the caddy. At the far end of the courtroom, where not one person had to smell them, stood those ugly patched-up shoes with the leather and the rubber and the nails sticking out. Abu stared at those shoes. These were not shoes. They were demons. And he vowed that no power on earth would make him touch those shoes again. Abu Qasim, thundered the great magistrate, do you know the meaning of the word incorrigible? Abu nodded. Abu Qasim, you will repay the citizens for all the damage which you and your shoes have done. Five thousand pieces of gold. Abu nodded. Will you have it? Your Majesty, if I sell everything I own... If I work as a slave for the rest of my life, I will raise it. All I ask is one teensy-weensy favor. Punish the shoes. The magistrate could not believe his ears. Punish the shoes. Put them on trial. Lock them up. Just get them out of my life. My dear Abu, we don't put shoes on trial. Kasim's eyes were gleaming now, like he had a fever. <laughs> but you see, you see, they're not shoes. They're devils. They're here to punish me. Punish you for what? I, uh, 
I admit it. I have not always been a perfect man. I may have been a little uh, stingy at times. I, I may have been a little selfish at times. But you see, when I look at those shoes, I see the tears of every beggar I ever refused. I hear the curses of everyone I may have cheated. Yes, 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 you have to use that word. They're out to get me. Save me from them, please. The caddy stared sadly at Abu Qasim. The old merchant had finally snapped. So what do you want me to do? Divorce us. Sign a decree that they are no longer my shoes, that we are no longer man and shoe, that I am not responsible for anything that they do. Please. And so, the Kadi took pity, and he signed the decree. And Abu Qasim, he walked out of court that day with his head held high, his shoulders back, the divorce in his hand. He was a new man. But uh, you're penniless, said his landlady, as she threw him out of his home, which he could no longer afford. Yes, <laughs> but I'm free. And it was true. His debts were paid, the shoes were gone, he was free. Tomorrow he'd worry about making a living. Already he had a new scheme taking shape. Ah, but that's another story. And this story is over. The Horrible Shoes of Abu Qasim from Bob Reiser. That's from a collection of stories called An Evening with Grandpa Abe and Uncle Ahmed. And up next, a story from Paul Strickland's one-man show, Ain't True and Uncle Faults. In the show, Paul Strickland tells the story of the Big Fib Cul-de-Sac Trailer Park, home to his Aunt True and Uncle Faults, along with a variety of other colorful characters. And this is, again, a story from that cycle of stories. It's called Perger's Gardens. It's Paul Strickland on the Appleseed. Nothing will grow in the trailer park dirt. So Will Perger's done the one thing ain't true and Uncle Faults always told him to. He went and made something up. And now whenever you walk in those quote-unquote gardens, you smile every time. Because you know somehow Will Perger has managed to keep something alive. He plants forks and knives and spoons with ribbons that Willie Perger's one creative guy. I mean, sure, he plants gardens that'll never grow, but he also makes beauty that'll never die. My Gander's garden. My Gander's Garden's four two-by-fours hammered down into the dirt, rectangle-like. And in the back left-hand corner, there's a bunch of barbecue tongs sticking up out of the ground. They're painted bright pink and green. Looks like Tim Burton invented the Venus flytrap. And in the back right-hand corner, there's a bunch of barbecue spatulae. That's plural for spatula. And what Will has done is he's painted the flip the burger over part bright yellow, and the stem is white. 
And down at the bottom, what he's done is he's shattered a bunch of clay pots and he's painted each one of those shards green and he's got those shards pointing off in different directions at the bottom of each one of those spatulae to look just like leaves. But that's not my favorite part of my Ganda's garden. My favorite part of my Ganda's garden are those mugs that are sticking up out of the ground. Handle first up, of course sunk slightly more or less than the mug next to it so it looks like they are growing up out of the dirt at different speeds and there's a sign amongst them it just says mug roots do not dig up he plants forks and knives and spoons with ribbons that willie purge is one creative guy i mean sure he plants gardens that'll never grow but he also makes beauty that'll never die Rumor has it's garden now. Rumor has it you'll get to know her in good time, but what you should know about her is that she does not like people knowing her business, and that's why her garden is inside her trailer. It's on top of a nightstand table. And what Will has done is he's glued a bunch of springs and pipe cleaners to the top of that nightstand table, and those pipe cleaners he's painted different algae colors. And on top of each one of those springs, what Will has done is he has cut out fish shapes and shark shapes out of tin cans, and he's glued those to the top of each one of those springs, but none of that's the interesting part. There's an 11 by 17 empty picture frame hanging from two metal cords from the seal in a ruse trailer, and you can see right through that picture frame to the top of that nightstand table, but that's not the interesting part. The interesting part are those two fans. There's one fan pointing in one direction for that picture frame, and there's one fan pointing in the other direction for that quote unquote plant and animal life. And so whenever you turn both those fans on low, the slow sway of that picture frame against the slow opposite sway of that plant and animal life makes Rumorazit's inside garden the most beautiful dry aquatic fan aquarium in all of Big Fib. He plants forks and knives and spoons with ribbons that Willie Purge is one creative guy. I mean, sure, he plants gardens that'll never grow, but he also makes beauty that'll never die. Now, Aunt True's garden's my favorite, and I know I'm biased. I mean, she's my Aunt True, but... I just like the fact that her garden has no boundaries. It's just kind of implied. It's five glass jars and bottles. Sometimes it's old olive oil jars. Sometimes it's old milk jars. That one time that he used Uncle Faltz's extra value-sized pickled pig's feet jar. I mean, you know that's a big jar if you're trying to get value out of pickled pig's feet. But what he does is he sticks them down into the dirt neck first, ostrich-like and he hammers the bottoms out of them. So now they're just like vases. And what's interesting is what he puts in those vases. Sometimes it's old wooden golf clubs he's cut in half and painted different colors. Sometimes it's old newspapers he's dipped in paint and dried stiff. But without question, my favorite are on those really windy weeks in the trailer park. Whenever Will Perger puts whistles on sticks in Ain't True's garden, and that way, every time the wind blows, you know, somehow Will Perger has managed to keep something alive. He plants whistles and sticks in people's gardens. The first time you see one, it's a crazy thing. But you stop, you watch, you look, you listen. Will Perger's gardens make the wind sing.
He plants forks and knives and spoons with ribbons that will it purge as one creative guy. I mean, sure, he plants gardens that'll never grow, but he also makes beauty that'll never die. See, he keeps it alive. Somehow he keeps it alive. Somehow he keeps it alive. <laughs> Just one of the stories from a cycle of stories called Ain't True and Uncle Faults, stories that take place among the colorful characters that inhabit the big fib cul-de-sac trailer park. Pleasure to bring you that tale, and uh, it's been such a pleasure for me to be with you. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You'll find an archive there filled with stories for you and your family, including many episodes of the show called Appleseed Extras, or Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.